0: The end of conscription was absolutely necessary. There's no question about it. But the consequences of ending conscription were not fully appreciated. And the most important of those consequences was that it gave the American people permission to not care about where their soldiers were serving and what they were doing. Uh, It basically handed the army more broadly, the armed forces over to the state Uh, so that the apparatus of the state could do whatever it wanted to do.
1: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the Book Club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate, and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on.
2: Hello, everyone. My name is Rory Fanning. Uh, I work for Haymarket Books. I'm a proud TomDispatch.com contributor, and I'm thrilled to introduce our participants uh, for tonight's event on Shedding an Obsolete Past. Tom Englehart created and runs the TomDispatch.com website, a project of the Nation Institute, where he is a fellow. He is the author of The American Way of War and The United States of Fear, both published by Haymarket Books. Tom is a highly praised history, uh, which is a highly praised history of American triumphalism in the Cold War, The End of Victory Culture, and a novel, The Last Days of Publishing. Many of Tom Dispatch's interviews were collected in Mission Unaccomplished, Tom Dispatch interviews with American iconoclasts and dissenters. With Nick Turst, he has written Terminator Planet, the first history of drone warfare, 2001 to 2050. He also edited The World According to Tom Dispatch, America in the New Age of Empire, a collection of pieces from his site that functions as an alternative history of the Mad Bush years. Next up is Andrew Basevich. Uh, who is the president and co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. A graduate of West Point and Princeton, he is also professor emeritus of history and international relations at Boston University University. Among his many books are The New American Militarism, The Limits of Power, America's War for the Greater Middle East, and most recently, After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed. With that, I will hand it over to Tom Englehart.
3: All right. You know, Andy, I just want to say, I'm going to hold up the cover of your book for just a second. I, I I'm incredibly proud. We've been working together, I think, since 2004. It's been a long, long time, and I'm really proud. I'm, I'm proud of working with you, and I'm proud of this book. I mean, this is this is your your writings for Tom Dispatch over the last four or five years. and they really do catch something about our desperately strange world um, title i'm shedding an ab- I'm shedding an obsolete past bidding farewell to the american century first of all i'm curious to know um, why is the past ob- why is our past obsolete by by past i mean the way
0: we have chosen to remember uh, the way we have chosen to enshrine our history, and by and large, the way we have chosen to enshrine our history is that it's a it's a narrative of triumphalism, uh, of good guys and bad guys, of of good against evil, uh, and we are the redeemer nation. And it seems to me that we've now reached a point uh, in 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 history as it unfolds where that notion, that claim, is not only obsolete, but it's counterproductive. Uh, So we need to think about our own past in different ways. And I think that's one of the things that the essays collected
3: here try to do. You know, in your introduction, speaking of the era after the Cold War, you write, Rarely in world history has an ostensibly great nation, in this case a self-anointed super-soul superpower, so quickly and definitively flung away its advantage and advantageous position. I was wondering if I thought that would be a reasonable place for us to start. Takes us back over the period. I mean, in a way, what I'm asking you is, how in the world did we get from the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1989, the end of the Cold War, to January 6, 2021, the assault on the Capitol?
0: In many respects, that's the key question. There is no simple answer, no single answer. Oh, Of course. As I have thought about it, however, I have tended to uh, give pride of place to our radical misunderstanding and misuse of military power, Uh, that our infatuation with war, our conviction that that through the use of military power, the Redeemer Nation can fulfill its calling, uh, has uh, backfired, to put it mildly, has has cost us uh, greatly, cost us in lives, cost us in dollars, cost everybody else in lives. uh, And that only when, uh, as a people, as a nation, we are willing to fess up to how how badly we've gone astray in our understanding of military power. Will there be then some chance of uh, of getting back on track?
3: You know, I to I want to turn to that issue of costs, but before before we do that, I mean, just again background that anybody would get from reading this book. Um, you basically say that that. The United States has been involved in what you call a 56-year-long war. You, you, you refer to it as the Very Long War, or the VLW, which started at the beginning with, with the beginning of the Vietnam War and has maybe more or less ended, but maybe not, with the end of the Afghan War. I wonder if you could take us through the Very Long War in some fashion.
0: So to state the obvious, the Vietnam War was a disaster. And a, uh, again, to state the obvious, uh, a, a failure of, of U.S. national security policy. At the time, I think many Americans, not necessarily members of the policy elite, but many Americans thought, well, by God, that was so screwed up, we're never going to do it again. Uh, in fact, yes. <laughs> In, in in fact, in remarkably, really astonishingly short order, the, the business of forgetting Vietnam began. You know, the fall of Saigon was 1975. By, in 1980, we elected uh, Ronald Reagan president. <clears throat> Reagan declared the Vietnam War an honorable undertaking. And during the Reagan administration, we not only... Undertook a uh, very substantial military buildup. One, one seeking to achieve global military supremacy, but also began then to to intervene. You know, in in Lebanon, uh, in in Grenada. Uh, you know, bombing places like uh, by, like Libya. It didn't kick the door wide open, but opened it a crack sufficient so that the presidents, the administrations who followed Reagan could push it open uh, that much further. I mean, the example, uh, uh, an example would be George Herbert Walker Bush and the uh, Iraq war of uh, uh, the, the first time going after Saddam Hussein.
3: Which, so, which was initially, which was labeled a success, but now looks like a disaster, yes?
0: It 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 does to me. It certainly didn't solve the problem of Saddam Hussein because we had to go fight a second war to eliminate Saddam Hussein, uh, and it it created various and sundry unwanted side effects that vastly complicated uh, our our role. I mean, as an example, it was it, Americans forget this. It was, as an example. It was only after the the Gulf War uh, of uh, of of 2000, and I'm getting my dates mixed up here now, Tom, Uh,
3: the the first Gulf War. The Gulf War was 1991 or two. Thank you.
0: It it was only after that 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 the the Bush administration made the decision to station U.S. military forces in Saudi Arabia. Well, guess what? A lot of Saudis, uh, to include this guy, Osama bin Laden, uh, weren't happy to have U.S. forces Uh, stationed in Saudi Arabia, and it is not not incorrect or unfair uh, to say that that decision, which stemmed from the incomplete success of the Gulf War, set in motion a series of events that would culminate in the 9-11 attacks, and which then, by extension, uh, set in motion a series of events that led to the global war on terrorism. So I mean we, we could we could have, we could have called this book one damn thing after another, uh, except that that suggests that nobody was in charge, nobody nobody uh, knew what was going on. Whereas I think if if we look at that entire period, uh, the, the 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 results stemmed from conscious decisions by a series of administrations that led to deeply unfortunate, uh, results.
3: And let's add that it was conscious decisions, among other things, because I think it's striking looking back by a father and a son who both invaded Iraq. <laughs> they both did indeed, but,
0: That's, but, but I, but I, I would come at it from a different point of view that it, it's decisions made by both Republicans and Democrats. You know, if, if US foreign policy since the end of the cold war has been, uh, a disaster, uh, it's not a disaster we can pin on one party or the other. We can't say, well, that, that's the party of recklessness, and here's the party of prudence and wisdom. There's been recklessness across the, the, the political spectrum, uh, and, uh, and prudence and wisdom have been uh, very difficult to find.
3: I, I want to return to the very long war and Vietnam, but since you brought up cost, you know, I was—I th- mean, one of the things that fascinates me—and you brought up uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats. I mean, w- one thing that fascinates me: we just went through a midterm election, and in that midterm election, nobody—there, there, there was—I think—literally no mention of the U.S. military, the the Pentagon budget, or the national security budget. I mean, in other words, it's it's estimated that by 2027 we will spend. $1 trillion a year on the Pentagon budget, it's already up to maybe $860 million. And that's not even the full national security budget. So, you know, I'm just struck that with all the things that Republicans disagree upon, even through the Trump era, the one thing they have agreed upon, for instance, is the Pentagon budget, right? I mean, there is total agreement there. They always up it. So I- as far
0: as I can tell, that's exactly right. But yeah. that I mean, again, I don't, obsessively read every statement read by every politician hoping to be president. But, but in, this, uh, in the midterm elections, <clears throat> I also didn't hear anybody talk about the, the failure of U.S. policy in Afghanistan. I mean, the longest war in our history, a war that lasted 20 years and ended in abject failure. Wouldn't you think that people running for the Senate or running for the House would say, well, I acknowledge this failure, and if you'll, if you'll vote me into the office, here's what I'll do to make sure that we don't repeat it. On the contrary, it's like you know a, an off limit subject. It's, it's, a, it's an astonishing commentary on American politics that we've, we've, we forget so early. Or maybe I should say we, we allow the politicians, the people running for
3: office to
0: get away with forgetting so quickly. You
3: know, the only thing from Afghanistan that was remembered in the last election, and it was only remembered by Republicans, was the fault of Joe Biden and how he got us out of there. That was the only thing. that.
0: That's exactly right. So it's a 20 year long war, uh, uh, 20, 20 years of folly. And the one thing that gets talked about, and it's legitimate to talk about it, is that the final withdrawal was a fiasco. It was indeed, but so was the 20 years that got us to that, to that closing moment.
3: Now let's go back in history. You, I mean, one thing that should be said, you, you graduated from West Point. You, you fought. I was on the streets in the Vietnam war, but I did not fight in the Vietnam war. You actually fought in the Vietnam war and I, you were a, a, a military man and, and, Something about Vietnam, I think, began to open your eyes to a different way of looking at the world. That's my guess. But I'm actually asking you, you were at the beginning of the very long war. So do you want to, in a more personal sense, take us through that?
0: Over time, uh, Vietnam has become uh, a much more uh, important factor in shaping my worldview but that's not where my intellectual journey or awakening, that's a pretentious term, uh, began. For me, it began with the end of the Cold War. Uh, you know, you and I, are, you're about, what, a year older than I am, I think? Okay.
3: <laughs>
0: and I, I grew up, we both grew up during the Cold War. Uh, And and my assumption, I can't tell you where this assumption came from, but my assumption was that the Cold War would last forever. It would never end.
3: And then it did end. That's interesting. That's true. It
0: it ended without any of our intelligence uh, communities saying, predicting its end. It just suddenly happened. Uh, And in my naivete, at this point, I'm uh, in my, what, 40s. I uh, in my naivete, I thought, well, now that the Cold War has ended, and ended on a successful note, the United States of America can go back to being a normal nation. And we can, we can tend to our own problems, which are significant. We can tend to our own affairs. We can address injustices and inequities. Uh, in the United States, no, we're not going to turn our back on the world and ignore it. But that there would be a redistribution of resources uh, to to take into account the fact that the biggest the biggest factor in international relations, the Cold War, had now disappeared. Much to my dismay, what actually happened is that the end of the Cold War gave rise to this extraordinary, the hubris, these claims uh, by ostensibly serious people that the United States was now the indispensable nation. Yeah. It was the sole superpower that we had reached the end of history, uh, that, that whatever little problems might crop up, that we would have this incredible military machine to be able to swat them aside uh, and that the American, American primacy would therefore last forever. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm being ironic here, but I don't think I'm, I'm exaggerating all that much. What happened, of course, is that in remarkably short order, again, successive administrations, both parties, simply squandered the advantages uh, that we had acquired as a result of the end of the Cold War. To me, that was the eye-opener. How could we be so stupid uh, to have followed the path we did after 1989? But then to your, to your question, it was in thinking about the sources of that stupidity that I really began to circle back around to the Vietnam War, which may have been the, the most stupid decision of all, uh, the most stupid episode, and to begin to examine more closely uh, how we got into the war, why it was so mismanaged, and all the the moral—not uh, simply political, but the, the moral consequences of that epic uh, disaster—and uh, I think probably at this point my views of the Vietnam War probably align pretty closely with yours, even though, as you said, you were in the streets protesting and I was
3: wearing a uniform and serving. And I mean, I remember from that end of the, the end of uh, the Soviet Union moment, uh, which you're absolutely right, it didn't matter where you were, we just didn't really, the Soviet Union seemed to suddenly collapse. We were promised something, and what we were promised was a peace dividend. And I think when you look, and in fact, when you look not just at what happened, but at your own writings on it, on, on what happened to us, that, that the peace dividend went basically to the military. It never yeah. went to us. And that, that I think that was that was a striking decision. The world there no longer was a power that could challenge us. And our response, which you've written about, you know, in, in very powerful ways, I think, our response was, Oh, we've got to we've got to put even more into our military. The military means everything.
0: But but let's let's be clear on who was making that argument. You know, the military means everything. Uh, obviously, you know the generals and the admirals—they're uh, going to want more money next year than they got this year. Uh, but the real impetus for for the real impetus for putting the military to work, you know, to to undertaking the tasks that we ostensibly needed to shoulder as the world's indispensable nation, It came from the civilians. From, from civilian political leadership, and from, and from civilians who were you know, cheerleading from the stands, uh, who were insisting upon the imperative of the United States demonstrating leadership, when leadership was kind of a, a synonym for using American military power. Uh, it's, it's, it's really uh, almost hard to imagine or hard to recall the frequency with which the US committed forces, with which US intervened uh, in the years following the Cold War, remembering that the end of the Cold War had supposedly solved everything. Well, then why, then why are we sending troops all over the place? It is
3: very, very strange. The, um, um, you know, the, your book in many ways Shedding an obsolete past is a history of the militarization of American policy, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, you know, I,
3: I, I think it is anyway.
0: Well, I mean, I, it's not as if that it's was. Not, a, by the way, I mean not just foreign policy. Uh, uh, it, it, it's not. You know, the, the the book is a series of columns that I wrote for you yeah. for no. Time Dispatch. So I didn't. I didn't set out to write a history. <laughs> In that sense, but I I do think I hope that if anyone reads the book picks up the book that it will it, it'll have a certain coherence uh, that the pieces will fit together uh, and tell a larger story that you just described.
3: Yeah. Having just gone through it again myself, I mean, after a fashion, because we were going to talk, I, I I think it. As I say, that's why I say, I think it is, in a way, a history of the militarization of American policy and also of the, I mean, it is a history also of the disaster of the American century. I mean, that, that very phrase, I mean, I wonder where it even came from, the American century. It was obviously post-Cold War, but what do you think?
0: Oh, Tom, it, we know where the phrase where, came from. I Henry Luce. Henry Luce. Uh, in, of course, course it did, originally. Feb February 1941, Luce, some folks listening in will not remember, Luce was the, uh, the publisher, founder of Life Magazine. Nobody reads magazines today. Back in the day, everybody read Life Magazine. Uh, and in yeah. February 1941, so this is before Pearl Harbor, February 1941 issue of Life Magazine, As the publisher, he published an essay called The American Century, and and the essay was one that described in the most expansive terms uh, America's calling to redeem the world, and I use that term redeem intentionally because he attributed to us, America, the United States, divine qualities, of, uh, which, which implied an ability to transform the global order. Uh, and the essay caught a lot of attention uh, at the time. And I think it's fair to say that the phrase, apart from the specifics of the essay, but the phrase ever since has uh, has, has captured the essence of a worldview uh, that, May may not have much power, persuasive power, you know, in Montana or Iowa, but I think still has very pers- great persuasive power in, 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 in Washington, in the editorial offices of the New York Times, you know, at Harvard University uh, and the like.
3: You know, I mean, one real difference, I was just thinking as we're talking about Uh, And which also you've written about between the war that you were in and the wars that followed the Cold War um, was that the American people had a different relationship to the military. Because, of course, we had gone after after the Vietnam War, we had gone from the all the from the from the uh, uh, from a draft army to what came to be called the all volunteer army, which was a, a nice way of putting it, I would say. And that, in a funny way, don't you think that left that left us in this in this in this century of war that left Americans capable of going, seeming to go about their lives as if we weren't at war, because well, largely getting, they were involved.
0: Yeah, you're really you're really putting your finger on. Uh, <laughs> I'll call it my pet hobby horse, except that makes it sound like it's a uh, insignificant. Uh, but yeah, so the, the end of conscription, Richard Nixon decision, uh, was absolutely necessary. There's no question about it at the time. Uh, it had become intolerable to a large segment of the American people, particularly those who were subject to the draft or whose kids were subject to the draft. Uh, it, had, it had become a source of such uh, uh, ne- negative impact on the army itself. You know, conscripts were a problem. Uh, so it was necessary to end conscription. There's no question. There's no, there's no having second thoughts about that. But the consequences of ending conscription were not fully appreciated. And the most important of those consequences was the one that you just alluded to, that it gave the American people permission to not care about where their soldiers were serving and what they were doing. Uh, It basically handed the army more broadly, the armed forces over to the state uh, so that the apparatus of the state could do whatever it wanted to do. Now, again, I'm, I'm overstating... Slightly, but, but, but only slightly. And I think that as, as we go on from where we are today and uh, other people besides you and me will reflect back on this post-Cold War period and examine the wreckage and try to understand how things could have gone so badly, so wrong. One of the factors that they will turn as a key explanation, is going to be the abandonment of the citizen-soldier in preference for an all-professional army or a standing army, uh, as the founders of our republic uh, called it. Today, I don't think that Americans are willing to uh, to examine that issue, but uh, my bet is someday they will. What what they will decide, how that will, what effect they will have that'll have on uh, US military policy, I don't know, uh, but, but the, the, the status quo will
1: become unsustainable. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America, by Joshua Frank. Once home to the US's largest plutonium production site the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington state is laced with 56 million gallons of radioactive waste. The threat of an explosive accident at Hanford is all too real, an event that could be more catastrophic than Chernobyl. Joshua Frank provides a much needed refutation of the myths of nuclear technology, from weapons to electricity, and shines a spotlight on the ravages of Hanford and its threat to communities, workers, and the global environment. As Nick Estes puts it, the Hanford site haunts the future of the Columbia River Basin, its land, people, plants, and animals. It's a nuclear crime scene that once made atomic weaponry. Joshua Frank dissects that historical crime scene, tracing it back to the colonization of this land while also pointing to the future crimes that may have been unleashed by perpetual radioactive pollution. Find atomic days at haymarketbooks.org.
3: To, to me, one of the, I, I, just to elaborate a little on this, one of the great differences between the two periods, Vietnam and this century, I mean, in Vietnam, because it was an all volunteer, because it wasn't an all volunteer army, because everybody was or could be involved because so many people could be drafted. I mean, there was real pro, when the Vietnam War came to seem like a horror, there was real protest. I mean, one of the striking things about the global war on terror period is there was a brief period with the invasion of Iraq, where there was a fair amount of protest, but it was very brief. And otherwise, these years of disaster passed, you know, unnoticed, you know, in a funny sort of way. And yet, and this is something you write about a great deal in in, in these essays in the book, the wars did come home. And I think that's something that might be worth talking about now the ways in which these wars came home because we are left. I mean, I, I we are left in a country that is increasingly obviously disturbed. And by the way, before we get to this interview, we have to discuss Donald Trump because what world are we in? So, so. But <laughs> I, I, I'd like you to, um, I'd like you to just, I mean, I mean, talk about those, you know, those two periods in terms of, you know, lack of, lack of yeah. involvement
0: so you published one of my pieces just this morning
3: i certainly did uh,
0: and and in that piece i
3: let me, me a second andy and and all of you who are watching or listening go to tomdispatch.com and take a look at andy's latest piece on on the the, the questions we didn't ask or the wrong questions we did uh the,
0: <laughs> you maybe lose my train of thought, Tom. I'm sorry. Uh, but w- what one of the one of the points I, I make in in this morning's piece and have made in other pieces and it's made in the book, uh, it has to do with my own assessment of uh, of Trump. And uh, certainly I view him as a loathsome figure uh, who never should have been elected president, who's utterly incompetent, uh, dishonest, uh, you know, pick 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 your negative adjectives to, uh, to add to that train, but I am absolutely persuaded uh, that he is, he is not cause, but he is consequence. That he exploited a situation with some skill uh, to advance his, his, his political fortunes. It, it, what was he exploiting? He was exploiting a, 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 an internal crisis that was partly political, partly economic, partly moral. Uh, it has a multitude of causes. But if you're gonna pick one specifically point of origin for the crisis, I'd point to the Vietnam War. Uh, that, that, that's that's when the, uh, the limits of the American political system were, were fully exposed. That's, that's when the recklessness of American elites became fully, uh, became fully uh, evident. So you, and you can go back further than that, obviously. Uh, you know, it's not as if the Vietnam War created racism, obviously. Uh, but, I, but I do think that if you have to pick one place as a point of origin, for the crisis that the country faces right now today, I would think that if you write in that book, then, then chapter one begins with, with the Vietnam War.
3: No, I can I can see that. And I, I but, but it does seem to me that that I mean that in many ways you can trace the rise of Trump in some odd fashion to our wars of this century, to the global war on terror. I agree. The, yeah and and i so that might be worth i mean and 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 it's not just trump but the but but the the divisiveness of our country today i mean it it, has, it is as if there you know the other day uh, peter moss uh, uh, journalist peter moss um um he wrote a piece for the intercept on soldiers who had come home from the from our our 20th uh, 21st century wars um, and ended up in these right wing you know right wing uh, uh, paramilitary groups um, he just he, he he traced a link between those wars and some of the ways in which this country was kind of beginning to fall apart and um, i think trump is another aspect of that possibly anyway yeah well tell I mean, me what the, you think.
0: the 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 wars are based on lies i mean certainly certainly the post 9/11 uh, military uh, undertaking was based on lies. We we were lied to about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. Uh, We were certainly deceived uh, that that war was going to be quickly won and would result in uh, the the emergence of a a stable democratic Iraq. And by extension, uh, that the Middle East more broadly would, would be pacified. That, that American power would be enhanced, that we would end up being in a stronger position. None of that, none of that happened. And, and I think Trump was, again, uh, completely cynical, but, but Trump was one of the few, maybe he was the only, the figures on the national stage who, who was willing to say outright, explicitly, what, what a waste... The post post nine eleven wars uh, ha, had been, and in in that instance, if in no other, he was speaking the truth. Uh, so uh, a, again, it, it it's not that he it, it it was it was it was exploiting it was exploiting a circumstance that he had little to do to uh, with creating.
3: You know, it's funny. I mean, this is just speaking for myself, but again, it relates to themes in your book, because, because the, Af- the Afghan war, the, the, these wars, you know, are like a thread running through the w- book, the disaster of these wars. And, and one of the things that strikes me, and I mean, you have written about this too, but one of the things that strikes me as so strange is we watched the end of the Cold War, we watched the Soviet Union, the Soviet, the Red Army, get caught in a, in a, in a war that wouldn't end, a nine or ten year war in Afghanistan that we actually helped to catch them in. Um, and the Red Army came home and the Soviet Union basically imploded. I mean, it wasn't quite that simple, but nonetheless, it was linked to Afghanistan. And as soon as the, the, they, they disappeared, I mean, not as soon, but not long after they disappeared, in this century, we went back to war in exactly the same country. Another great imperial power caught in the same damn place without ever thinking about it or thinking about them. And I, I find that strange.
0: Well, we have to remember the, the level of confidence that the political establishment and to a considerable extent the American people had in the, in the American military. You know, that we couldn't be beat. Uh, and, and that, therefore, the risks... We, we didn't have to pay attention to what happened to the Russians, Tom, because, because we were better than that.
3: No, that's your absolute absolutely.
0: Right. We, we, would not, we were not going to get trapped in Afghanistan. Right. We were not going to fail. What are we? What are you, we're, we're not Russians. I mean, the, the, the arrogance in retrospect uh, is so apparent. Uh, but at the time, sadly... Uh, there were far too many people to go along with the, the, the claims of American military uh, supremacy. And to be fair, to be fair, you know, the, the initial intervention in Afghanistan met with some success in an in, in immediate success. Similar, the initial intervention in Iraq in 2003 met with some success. Saddam was overthrown, uh, but but those initial indicators turned out to be misleading, to put it mildly. And, and there we were then experiencing, a, 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 on an even larger scale, uh, the trap uh, that the Russians had fallen into.
3: That's right. And, and I mean, as, as, as you point out in the book that, that I mean, we, I mean, in a way, the the Afghan war, even though we seemed to hate Afghanistan, it was a disaster from the beginning because theoretically we were going after Osama bin Laden at all. We were going after um, uh, the terrorists, and in those many early years, that we didn't do. So it was in a funny way, it was a, an early failure. It just didn't wasn't taken that way.
0: That's correct. It wasn't taken there. It wasn't advertised that way. What was advertised was, "Oh look, uh, Kabul has fallen, and we are now installing our guy uh, in the government," uh, and that that, that that somehow had echoes of uh, previous victories in much earlier periods of time. But it was all it was all an illusion.
3: You know, this is to change the subject slightly. The uh, in more than slightly. Um, I was actually relieved. I mean, in the in the last couple of days, uh, uh, Joe Biden met with Xi Jinping, the the head of China, and and Biden. I mean, Biden's people, who are old. I mean, in his 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 foreign policy, people who are kind of old Cold War people in their own way, or younger versions of old Cold War people. They've been talking about a new Cold War with China, and he actually got up, and 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 kind of backed down on that a little. He said that there was going to be. This was not a new Cold War. I wondered what you just made of his meeting with China, uh, with, the, with the head of China, and of the U.S.-China relationship in this I,
0: world. I don't think I paid as close attention to it as you did. Uh, certainly, I have followed the, uh, the, the coming new Cold War, uh, you know, the, the beating of that uh, drum uh, in, in Washington, whether or not the president uh, is uh, rethinking that, whether the president has the ability to move policy in a different way, uh, I think very much remains to be seen. You know, the military-industrial complex is deeply invested, I believe, uh, in a new Cold War with China because that holds... You you alluded earlier to, you know, uh, trillion-dollar uh, d- defense budgets. Well, how do you get that? Uh, you-, you get that with an open-ended military competition with the People's Republic of China, which either is or soon will be uh, the most powerful country in the world, at least in terms of uh, of their economy. So God bless President Biden if he's going to try to push back against that, uh, but it's no. Go back to go back to Trump Tom. You know, uh, Trump swore uh, he was going to end this period of American intervention. That he was going to pull us out of Iraq, pull us out of Syria. Uh, and guess what? Didn't happen uh, because the the, in, the national security institutions uh, were opposed to that, uh, and they were able to get partly, I think, because of of Trump's very limited attention span, uh, they were able to game him enough uh, that, that it, what it, the, the bureaucracy's preferences triumphed over what supposedly the president himself wanted to do.
3: Now, Tom Dispatch is not the largest or most central media phenomenon in our world.
0: It should be, but yeah.
3: And I was wondering, you know, when you're writing for it, I mean, who do you imagine you're writing for? I hadn't thought about that.
0: Uh, and you're you're better able to comment on your audio, on, on your readership than I am. But it seems to me that the, your readership is probably probably consists of. Well-informed people. I think so. Not just well-informed Americans, but well-informed people who are deeply dissatisfied with the trajectory of U.S. policy and more broadly with the trajectory of, of, of world affairs. And they are, they are looking for alternative, they want to hear alternative voices Time Dispatch is not the only place to hear an alternative voice,
3: yes.
0: but it is a reliable place to hear an alternative voice. And not just an alternative voice that uh, rants about, uh, you know, the sky is, is falling in, uh, but offers cogent analysis, and I think more often than not, uh, uh, describes alternatives, you know, instead of this path that we have been going down, there is an alternative path. And this is what that path looks like. And this is how one might get to that alternative path. Uh, I think that's your readership. Uh, and I think that actually describes the value of, 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 Tom, of Tom Dispatch. Well,
3: thank you. The, uh, um, now... If, if you could imagine, I mean, can you imagine, let's, I mean, forget our age, because this is not a, necessarily a realistic thing in terms of our ages, but can you imagine 10 years from now, you're sitting down to write an essay? I mean, what do you think, what do you think our world could look like? Where do you think we're going?
0: Well, I'm pretty sure this is, this is your view, and it has come to be mine. In part because of my own reading, but frankly also in part because of our conversations. I fear 10 years from now we'll be so deep into the climate crisis uh, that uh, desperation uh, will have uh, taken over Uh, and the legitimacy of our institutions which is already precarious, will have become more precarious still, which doesn't open the door to enlightened policies. It actually opens the door to to chaos. I mean, if there ever was a time when in our republic there was a need for Not everybody to sit around and sing Kumbaya, but a a, a need for Republicans and Democrats to engage in serious conversations about what can we do to try to alleviate this potentially existential crisis that is staring at us. That time is now. And one of the really dis- discouraging aspects of the moment, and I think this is reinforced by the midterm elections, uh, is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that that kind of serious conversation is going to happen in in Washington. I mean, and again, I know that you read more papers than I do, but... My God! I mean, it, I, I I I take it as a as a good thing uh, that the expected what was it called red wave uh, didn't didn't materialize. But what do we end up with here? You know, we're going to end up with the Republicans controlling the House, but of course they're going to control it like you know with 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 a two or three seat majority, which means that they'll have a very difficult time accomplishing. Anything, uh, and uh, and the the, you know, the Democrats uh, with what a 51-49 uh, Senate and the oldest president we've ever had. I mean, it, it's hard. It, it's yeah. hard to it's hard to look at look at and Trump now running. It's it's hard to look at that, that situation and say, aha, I feel good about the prospects of enlightened governance. Uh, coming from Washington over the next couple of years, and if we don't do it within the next couple of years, then two year, ten years down the road scenario, man, we are our goose
3: is cooked. Well, this is this is my worry, and it's become very much the focus of Tom Dispatch. Um, so, yeah, I I do I do agree with you on that. I just uh, I'm 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 very very worried about it and you know and I'm, I'm struck also i mean i uh that 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 this country at such a moment that its best choice might turn out to be someone who's going to turn who's going to who will be 86 by the time he finishes his second term in office right. i mean i mean i mean american presidents once upon a time they were in their 50s. i mean uh, Ronald Reagan was 79, and he was the oldest. The oldest before him had been Eisenhower at about the age 70. When he left, this is when they left office. Mm-hmm. You know, and we now have, in the midst of, just what you're saying, a, 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 a literal global crisis, we don't have a lot of youthful energy unless you want to look at Marjorie Taylor Greene or something.
0: You know I mean? Well, I'll end up, let, let, let me add this not, other this other consideration, I think. You know, you're a progressive, I call myself a conservative, we very rarely talk about cultural issues because I'm pretty sure that we would find ourselves in very significant disagreement. That's a good reason not to talk about it. Uh, but but I am troubled by the extent to which the culture wars ha- now pervade our politics. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that that is the arena in which these matters can be sorted out. And if indeed we have a, a short timeline uh, to come up with effective solutions to things like the climate crisis, then to spend all our time arguing about abortion uh, strikes me as you know, wasted energy. Uh, it really comes down to whether or not we have a serious political system, uh, and I think the evidence suggests that no, we don't. Uh, in, in some respects, I suppose it's a source of entertainment uh, in, a, in a dark, dark way, uh, but it's not a source of, of effective response to looming problems.
3: I mean, it's completely obvious. You know, I mean, we may disagree on many things, but it's it's completely obvious that somehow we have to come together if we're going to deal with the state of this this planet. And I mean, that's you know, and it, I think it's it's hard, Andy, getting getting old, and seeing that that the solutions. Well, they. I mean, for instance, I'll give you an example from my point of view. I mean, when the United States wanted to win the Second World War, they put untold amount they gathered together the best scientists they could find they put untold amounts of money into something that was called the Manhattan project and they created right. they created the atomic bomb now mm-hmm. that wasn't a happy story but it is striking that 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 they did that i'm struck with climate change that nowhere not in the united states and as far as i can tell nowhere on earth scientists have come together to follow climate change but no one is putting the money into uh, you know, creating a Manhattan Project for something for trying scientifically to solve climate change. I mean, I'm just struck by how unoriginal our our attempted solutions to anything, as, as to the extent that they even exist, are. It's, uh, I, I
0: I confess to having become very cynical about these cops, you know, these uh, yeah. these annual meetings about climate change in you which it's about people make very impressive speeches. They are impressive speeches, but the gap between the rhetoric and, and a- action, you know, the, the absence of a r- real sense of urgency uh, is quite is quite apparent.
3: I mean, the sanest man on earth in some ways is Antonio Guterres, the, uh, the head of the UN. Would you listen to him talking about climate change, but does anybody pay attention? I mean, I don't mean a cop, but in, in the world where it matters. In the world of Washington, I don't think so. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Well, Andy, you know, I, would you would, do you have a bright note, brighter note that you'd like to end on?
0: Well, we are old guys, you and me. We are, uh, and uh, and the people listening in don't necessarily care. But you have been a great friend to me. Uh, you are a spectacular editor. Uh, I mean, t- you've edited how many of my books? Who counts? B- bunches of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, we, we talk on the phone quite frequently, but every every month or so, you call me on the phone and you say, Andy, Andy, you need to write a piece for Time Dispatch. And I typically say, geez, Tom, I don't have any ideas. <laughs> And then you and I have a conversation of you know 10, 12, 15 minutes. And by the time we get to the end of the conversation, I'm saying, okay, that's it. That's the idea. I got it. So the, the, you you have this fertile imagination maybe we with, maybe that
3: we I appreciate with, so greatly. Maybe we should maybe we should what? Maybe we should come up with your next piece right now. No. <laughs>
0: You have to give me a break. <laughs> but I, I but just have, well, I, I have been so uh, appreciative of uh, of our partnership uh, over the years. It's been very gratifying for me. And I want to take this opportunity to thank you for everything you've done for me.
3: I mean, Andy, you know, I mean, I have to say my self-interest is, you know, you I think you may be the most popular writer at Tom Dispatch. And I think that says a lot, and it says maybe a lot about the Snatch audience too. And it's been it's been such a pleasure for me. I mean, it's really been a pleasure for me. And I'm gonna I'm gonna hold this book up again because I actually think I don't normally sit around and say you've got to buy this book, but I actually do think people should get if you, if you are watching this or listening to this, you should get on shedding an obsolete past. Um, Andrew Basevich's new book, and and I don't normally do that, so. There we are. Andy, do we say goodbye?
0: Let's say goodbye. Thanks for this conversation,
1: Tom. Bye, Guy. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.